0: It's hard to say goodbye to an empire. It's traumatic to part with former colonial possessions. It's difficult to view former vassals as sovereign and co-equal neighbors. A quarter of a century after the Soviet Union collapsed, large and stable majorities of Russians believe that Moscow still has a legitimate claim on the territory of its neighbors. Is this just a case of prolonged post-imperial stress disorder that will pass with time? Or is it a more chronic condition that will leave Russia's neighbors in a constant state of peril? Hello from our broadcast headquarters in Prague, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast. My name is Brian Whitmore, author of the Power Vertical blog here at RFRL. Joining me here in the studio is co-host Mark Gagliotti, a senior research fellow at the Institute of International Relations in Prague, head of its Center for European Security, and a visiting fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Welcome, Mark. Hi, though. And also joining us here in the studio is journalist Anna Aratunyan, author of the book The Putin Mystique Inside Russia's Power Cult. Welcome back to the podcast, Anna, and welcome back to Prague.
1: Thank you, and great to be here as great always. To
0: have you. So the, the the new Pew Research Center poll came out uh, this, this year, the annual poll of Russians, and the results were, I would argue, both alarming and encouraging. Um, in the alarming department, as I noted in the intro, some 60% say that Russia has a legitimate claim to the territory of its neighbors. Now... That number's been pretty stable um, since 2002, although it was as low as 26% in the early 90s. In a number that initially looks disturbing, some 59% say the breakup of the Soviet Union was a bad thing. But that figure is actually down 10% from 69% in 2015. Moreover, the percentage of Russians who say the Soviet breakup was a good thing has nearly doubled from 17% in 2015 to 31% now. And in the encouraging department, nearly two-thirds, 65%, say Russia should focus on its own domestic problems rather than looking abroad. And in the mildly encouraging department, while 80% of Russians still view NATO as a threat... Just 41% see NATO as a major threat, down from 50% in 2015. And the percentage of Russians who say that NATO is not a threat at all has risen from 10 to 16%. Mark, what do you make of these somewhat contradictory numbers?
2: Yeah, I think in some ways... They are perversely encouraging. Perversely um, encouraging. Yeah, exactly. Because, look, are, are they, from, from certainly from a Western point of view, the kind of figures we'd like to see from a large nuclear-armed neighbour? The answer is no, of course not. But I think we should put them in both a long-term and a short-term perspective. The long-term perspective is, as, as you indicated, the fact that Russia is still grappling with the end of empire, the end of superpower status. And we know that takes a long time, he said, as a British passport holder. Um, you know, I mean, well, hold, you hold on, because I knew you were
0: going to go there. I knew you were going to go there, but 25 years now. Now, where was Britain 25 years after empire?
2: 25 years after empire? Well, obviously, it depends quite when empire ended. But, you know, we're talking about the mid-70s. <sighs> this is still a okay. period in which actually Britain felt that it, it, it should and could play a substantial role. Um, sort of that, that,
0: that, that's fine. Could and should play a substantial role is fine. Having designs in the territory of your neighbors is not. Yeah, so fine. but
2: the, bear in mind the big, big difference is between a contiguous land empire and mm. your sort of classic, you know, place where your empire happens overseas. Far, see, in both France and Britain, were very fortunate in those terms. Mm. They could disengage from empire and look with equanimity as, say, Rhodesia and then Zimbabwe. Yeah, how, about, the how, about, Zimbabwe. how about
0: Austria in the seventies?
2: <laughs> well, Austria was definitely not I think I think it's fair to say Austria did not de-empire in 1950s. Um, I mean, you know, Austria was basically its empire was 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 thoroughly sort of shattered by, by the war. end of the First World War. Exactly. Um you know, and, and so I I think I think there there is a difference and actually it's worth mentioning after all that Austria Austria gives birth to Adolf Hitler. So you know, I mean, I think we, we have to accept that this is going to be a traumatic process, mm-hmm. particularly in the no, context of the empire. No, I'm just trying to get the empire. sense of
0: is this a long? we're looking at this in yeah. historical terms, is this a long time or not? It's been a quarter of a years, century.
2: What twenty? Yeah, but twenty five years. I mean, a generations that, that's, that's, grown up. Well, that exactly. That's basically like one political, true political generation. You know, if one looks at Putin, Putin is a product of the traumatic end. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a product of the 1990s. He's a product of the 1980s. He, you know, he's a product of the collapse of East Germany. I mean, you know, very much that those were his, yeah, um, sort of f- politically formative mm-hmm. experiences. It's precisely the next generation that's going to be the really interesting one. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so so that's the sort of you know the, the kind of the one. I mean, you know, the I'm, I'm not saying it makes these attitudes okay. I'm just saying it helps explain them, particularly in the context of the fact that. The Soviet Empire, like the Tsarist Empire, was one where there was much more interpenetration of cultures and peoples. But also the the short-term context. I mean, it's fascinating if one looks at the extraordinary, toxic, bilious propaganda campaign that had been waged, especially since 2014, to try and convince Russians, firstly, that they are indeed an imperial nation who have been... Given short shrift by modern geopolitics. And secondly, that in fact, the big bad West is behind every attempt to Mm. destabilize or whatever. I mean, for me, I think it's fascinating. And and what an example of failed effort that for all that, um, the the, the proportion of people who believe that, that Russia has a claim on parts of the territory of its neighbors has not increased.
0: Well, yes, it has. I mean, it, it, uh, over, well, over, over since 2014. Exactly. Since 2014, in, in since 2014 exactly. no. okay. you know, So, so did,
2: dis, dis, despite that, the fact that, yes, NATO is still seen as a threat, but actually as a major threat, it's, it's diminished. I mean, I think this is, for me, this is the fascinating mm. thing. It's not that this is, in and of itself, what I would regard as a comforting result. It's actually that it must be far, far less comforting for the propaganda meisters in the Kremlin, given the, the kind of um, frenetic spirit of beleaguered fortress they have tried to generate.
0: I mean, another interesting thing in the poll is that, is that an increasing percentage of Russians believe that Russia is getting the respect it deserves in the mm. world, and this this, this is also a, 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 an interesting thing, and it might account for some of those NATO numbers not being as much of a threat, because what I found interesting is the perceived threat of NATO in the eyes of Russians as a major threat has gone down since 2015 at a time when NATO is building up its eastern flank mm-hmm. um, for purely defensive purposes, of course, but not, that's not the way it's always viewed in Moscow. But can uh, I just, just yeah. come, come back on that? I mean, the interesting thing is that it's a double-edged <laughs> blade here. In terms
2: of the, you know, the, the growing proportion who feel that Russia gets the respect it deserves, on the one hand, you could think, aha, well, that's a sign of successful propaganda. You know, basically Mm. this message that Putin stood up to the Mm. West and they've had to accept it. But on the other hand, it is also a sign of a country that is more comfortable with itself and its global position. Because the fascinating thing is that in some ways, the Kremlin does not want Russians to be happy with the status quo. Mm. The Kremlin wants them to be constantly feeling belittled and hard done by. Well,
0: I think they want both things. They want them to be to feel like this leadership has given them a degree of prestige in the world, but yet they they want them to want more. Exactly. Um, this, this is what I mean. I think this is the problem for the, for the propaganda. Anna, you recently participated in a panel in Tallinn on Russian public opinion with my good friend Alexei Levinson of the Levada Center. What are your thoughts?
1: Um, well, I'm always. Uh, not, not, to, not to overcomplicate uh, sociological polls, but I always like to get underneath the numbers and look at the sentiment because ultimately these numbers, we have to understand the, the, it's, it's a tool and it's a limited tool. And we have to um, we have to understand that uh, this the, the numbers about uh, Russia having a claim. Uh, To territories. We're really talking about a sentiment here that's not so much about a claim as about a sense of belonging. And I'm always curious, uh, not with this poll, but I'm always curious to look at how the question was formulated uh, in Russian. Was it um, mm. uh, wh- What was the Russian question? My sense, based on the conversations uh, with Russians that I've had on this particular issue, I mean, I always like to look, you know, underneath um, the polls, you know, and I've talked to sociologists about this. Is that they're expressing a feeling? They're not uh, really saying that we need to invade and take these countries back. That's well, how the question is 52%,
0: Fifty-two percent 52% did say that they would. Uh, pref- they, they believe that Russia has the right to intervene militarily in the affairs of its neighbors if the if the if the interest of ethnic Russians are are are, are threatened. Mm-hmm. Um, that so, is, I
1: mean, there's, there's definitely an overlap there. Uh, but one thing I think we need to remember is that when a pollster calls a respondent, uh, very often the respondent is asked to give an on-the-spot thought mm-hmm. when actually what yeah. he's expressing is a, is a feeling. And in this case, um, I think that the feelings that are being expressed is uh, a nostalgia for for the past. They're not really rationalizing this as much. They're, they're, they're saying, hey, we used to be a family. We used to vacation together. We used to fight uh, in the same—we used to serve in the same army together with these people. Surely belonging together is better than being apart.
0: But that's different than having a claim on territory. It is. That's it different. Is. I mean, Americans and Canadians— Vacation together. They don't serve in the same army, but we're pretty close. Exactly. But we don't have claims in Canada's right. territory.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying it doesn't. It it could mean a claim could be used by the government to rally these people uh, to say yeah, and therefore we should do A, B, and C. But ultimately, this is underneath it's uh, underneath a certain sentiment that the Kremlin uh, might exploit or might not.
0: Well, moving away from the the, the, the nitty gritty of the numbers here, do you see this going back to my original question? In here, do do we do, is this is this post imperial syndrome temporary or chronic? How do you how do you how do you do you see it fading? Mark seems to make the argument: what's happening is a natural process. We saw it in Britain, we saw it in Austria, we saw it, we've seen it in France, we've seen it elsewhere. Um, give Russia time; they'll get over this. Mm-hmm. Um, I. Actually, when I look at this kind of historically, I mean, you look at post-World War One, the British, Ottoman, Austro-Hungarian, and Russian empires essentially, if not completely broke up, moved very close to breaking up in all cases, but only the Russian one was fully install, re- restored and even enlarged. 91, that one collapsed again, and now we're beginning to see, I'm beginning to wonder how chronic this is.
1: It, it I think it's it's a problem because of the government propaganda mm-hmm. uh, these now what I said about these sentiments they're there, and they're going to be there and w- there is a way that the government can sway these sentiments, give them vindication, validate them, and turn the, them into something else. I think part of the problem, what has not been letting this empire die and the hopes of its resurrection is again this idea, this, this back and forth game by the Kremlin of either saying that uh, the breakup of the Soviet Union was a geopolitical catastrophe and then kind of going back Putin will, will make statements saying no, no, no it was bad to be in the Soviet Union and then we have 2014. The, the Kremlin has been going back and forth kind of toying with the sentiment and that's why uh, at this point it, it, it's becoming a chronic thing. They're not really allowing, uh, the, the way the state is toying with the idea of empires, not allowing these, these sentiments to gradually turn into something
0: else. Mm-hmm. Mark, what are you writing about there?
1: <laughs> um, I, mean, I was just sort of thinking here sort of historically, I mean, actually,
2: it, it was World War II that really was the death, mill, death knell for the British and French empires. But if one looks at the post-war World War I, um, Austria and the Ottoman Empire, I mean, in some ways, these are all you know empires that were already dying. It was just, as it were, the war that gave the final... As the Russian. The Russian Empire, yeah, but the, the interesting thing was the Russian Empire never really, as it were, got to die. There, there, there was this sort of period of sort of um, chaos and anarchy around 1917. And then the, the, the Russian Civil War was really a process of reconstruction of the Russian state, as, as the Bolsheviks not only resisted and defeated all the various enemies, but they actually reasserted control over much of not all, obviously, but, but most of the Russian Empire. They, they lost Poland and such like. Um, so, I mean, in some ways what we didn't get after um, the First World War and the collapse of, of the Tsarist Russian Empire was actually the, the formation of stable new states. You actually had sort of polities and territories. And the reason why, for example, you know, Poland... Is still Poland and was you know became Poland was actually precisely because you know, Poland Poland was a working state. So I mean I I I, th- I think there are sort of cautions with with the, hist- the historical parallels. Um, but I said I, I mean I do think there is a sort of a key point is this business about um, what is what is actually the the intent and this kind of speaks to the point that, that that Anna was making. Look, ordinary Russians when when they're asked do you think sort of Russia has a claim. They may well say yes. Do you feel that, that Russia has the right to, to intervene if, if ethnic Russians um, are, are at risk? And obviously, you know, informed by this propaganda that talks about, you know, fascists crucifying young, young Russian boys and so forth. You know, there, there, there is an element in which that has an effect. But actually, again, for me, the most interesting question is how far do you move beyond that kind of general belief? And how far do you actually say, well, OK, shall we do it then? Are you willing to have your son go and fight and die on a foreign battlefield? I mean, I thought it was interesting that, that, that we, with, with Syria, for example, um, which obviously has been hyped, and particularly has been hyped as a unrealistically, bloodless conflict. But nonetheless, you know, you actually have 46% who basically say keep it at the current level, 34% who say bring it down, and mm-hmm. only 11% who actually sort of say move, move it up. I mean, I think, you know, ag- again, we, we, have to, we have to be aware of this, this disconnect, um, between sort of general attitudes and the specific willingness to do it. And again, I mean, and here I actually would want to reiterate this point. Absolutely. Insofar as it is a problem, and there clearly is a problem, it's precisely it's how the state mobilizes. But I think the, 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 what what the, sort of, what the data shows is that the state is not as good at mobilizing these feelings amongst Russians than we might have expected, and that once upon a time they were. Now, the one is, the state doesn't need to. The state doesn't actually have to ask Russians if they're okay with some other imperial venture. But on the other hand, if we believe that the state does so precisely to distract and pacify ordinary Russians, actually, this data gives us faint glimmers of hope, because it doesn't seem to me as if Russians are actually calling out for a state to be more muscular on the world scene.
0: But but, but more muscular in the neighbourhood. Well, not even.
2: Again, I I think think there is a difference between the sort of a general belief about do you think that Russia has the right to intervene? You know, the very fact that we we have seen there is a clear lack of enthusiasm about the Donbass, for example. Um, And this is one of the reasons why the state keeps it secret and tries to sort of pretend that there isn't a military commitment there. You know, I mean, insofar as we have data, and again, again, I think this is... One, one could hardly expect Pew to be able to ask the really, really sensitive questions mm. like, do you think we ought to be sending boys to fight and die in Ukraine? Um, but, you know, in, insofar as we do have evidence, actually, it doesn't suggest that, that Russians are willing to pay the price of empire. Because this is it. Empires, we think of them as something that, that benefits the metropolis, and on one level they do. But they also have massive costs. Mm. And I think at the moment, the Russians are not really keen on the costs.
0: Well, I want to shift to the notion of leadership, Ana. You brought it up here, and it's, um, it, it's interesting, because if you look at these numbers in the early 90s, the support for um, claiming territory of, of, of Russia's neighbors was, was very low. It was in the 20s. Mm-hmm. It was steadily rising throughout the 90s, um, and then in 2002, it topped out where, it, where, where it's remained pretty much ever since at 60% in this poll how much does leadership matter? Putin has encouraged these imperial tendencies, but he's also seems to be a reaction to them. Putin was the kind of leader the Russian people were ready for and wanted in, in 1999, 2000, at the end of the Yeltsin period. So what's, is the tail wagging the dog here or or, or is, the, is would these attitudes change with different leadership?
1: Um, that's a, very interesting point. I've had these discussions with uh, sociologists. I want to mention the late, um, great Vladimir Schlappenthal, who I had the honor of writing a book with. We had these uh, discussions about the nature of public opinion, I mean, what this means, and the extent to which it is, in fact, shaped by propaganda. And Markham was making a very interesting point that these last numbers are showing uh, the limitations of that. So, I mean, I would tend to say that, yes, I mean, of course, leadership does matter in this sense. Uh, yes, people have an underlying sentiment that they would like to see vindicated on the state level. People tend to like it when uh, they have a feeling that they haven't really formulated, uh, and they s- hear something similar from somebody powerful like Putin. That makes them feel good. Mm. Uh, that makes those feelings come out as more robust, um, intense, and formulations. And then when you ask them about claim, they'll they'll, they'll say yes. But there's a limit to that. To exa- exactly how far they're willing to uh to to sacrifice and with putin there's always been that uh question of of leadership there there's been a, a sort of um almost ambivalence i think we'll get to in the, in the, when we in yeah. the later part of the program um that yes people need uh people need a narrative they need a story they need an idea uh they seek that from putin the extent to which he gives them that well sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't so he's been kind of like playing around with that idea some people are have been you know i'd say quite frustrated by that especially in the military and mm-hmm. security community um, so I mean, it's it, it, it's it's a question. I'm I'm sorry. I'm kind of like not really answering that. And yes, the sociological view is leadership does matter, propaganda does matter. But I'm actually going to question to what extent it actually does.
0: Well, then let me flip it around. I mean, imagine you had a distinctively non-imperial leadership, a leadership that wanted to look inward, and the leadership that was could to say we have to get over this imperial sooner because it, it, it's really not good for us. Mm-hmm. Would these sentiments slip away? And the reason I ask that is because, like I said, if you look at these numbers throughout the '90s. They're very low 91 92, mm-hmm. but they steadily were going up during the presidency of of, of, of Boris Yeltsin, which <coughs> was not really an imperial an imperial minded presidency pushback
1: against Yeltsin's almost a rebellion I think yeah. the sentiments themselves they they remain latent they don't really go anywhere and mm-hmm. now if if the Putin uh, administration decides to say these are bad things you shouldn't be thinking then that's gonna yeah that's going to have an effect We don't know how much, but it is.
2: Mark,
0: thoughts on leadership?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the 90s were a period of extraordinary failure of leadership in Russia, clearly, with Boris Yeltsin. Um, And particularly, it was a failure in this crucial moment to, to demonstrate to ordinary Russians that democracy and liberal market economics can actually be a good thing and does not just simply mean immiseration for 99.9 recurring percent of the population and a sense that we are ignored and humiliated, plus, of course, you know Yeltsin himself. And I think it's fair to say also that the West did not handle Russia well in hindsight. But the key thing is, if one looks at early Putin, Putin of 1999 and the early 2000s, this, was, this is a man who talked tough nationalist rhetoric, but this is not a man who was setting out to basically fight a political war with the West. Quite the opposite. On the one hand, it was... Actually, I'm going to go back to give Putin three hands, but never mind. On the one hand, it's actually about sort of tight internal thought. control. You know, teach the, the Chechens a lesson to show that actually they don't get to sort of flout, flout Russian values and everything else. So, yes, they, they, were, they were happy with that. They wanted a Putin who could make Russia feel respected, because there had been this extraordinary, frankly, embarrassment of of the Yeltsin years—the the sort of Yeltsin, the, the the drunk, and so forth. Everyone, everyone knew it, so there was that sense that not that we needed to be tougher than the West, but we just didn't need to be embarrassing. And the third element that, that that Putin was offering, though, ironically, was actually at the same time the sense that we can actually have a proper relationship with the West, not as supplicants, but as partners. You know, early Putin, there, there was the talk about potentially joining NATO. Mm-hmm. There was talk about closer sort of interconnections with, with, with Europe and so forth. So, you know, it wasn't that there had been a sense that in the Yeltsin years... Um, Moscow was willing to, to basically sell anything, give anything up to the West. I mean, I don't, mm. I don't buy it myself, but I think that, that was the sort of the sense. And therefore, though, obviously, there was this kind of backlash. Putin, I think, stood for just simply a Russia that was confident, a Russia that wants to make a deal with the West, wants to have a partnership with the West, but not simply as a, a supplicant. I think that's very appealing.
0: Now the tide turned with two thousand three to two thousand four with the colored revolutions, essentially, though. The tide for, for Putin and his leadership on mm-hmm. this issue turned when he again, why? He felt this was an encroachment by the West into his sphere of influence. Um the basically the Ukrainian and Georgian civil societies rising up and saying we want better governance in his eyes was a Western encroachment. So so that the, the, the tide turned there so that these these sentiments were latent in Putin as well I would argue.
2: Sure but I think it's it's worth mentioning though that in those days we didn't have a Donbass of course Russia continued to try and you know influence and, and so forth. I mean I am certainly not in any way trying to whitewash what they did. But the interesting thing is that actually then Moscow was in many ways a lot more measured than now. I mean I think what yeah. we have seen is Oh well, no that's the point where precisely the, the tide that Putin, began to turn indeed. and 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 look and, and I think Putin like so many authoritarian leaders becomes at a certain point a caricature of himself. Um but the point is because this is not a democratic society. Um, you know, actually, so much of policy really just reflects what's going on between Putin's ears rather than than, than anything else. But yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, we, we, we have seen elements. Putin was never going to be the West's friend. But on the other hand, in the early days, there was at least a certain promise that he could be the kind of the neighbor whom you may not really like, but at least kept his side of the garden clean, mm. didn't um, encroach onto your side, all that kind of thing. Just basically, you know, each got a neighbor ways. to
0: whom to the Ukrainians, the Georgians, the Baltic States or a neighbor to the West?
2: Well, to to the West. But in part and parcel, I mean, in the early days, a sense that, you know, I mean, part of that was precisely a sense that that, that Russia would not seek to be imperialist. Look, I mean, these thing, things have gone on about, you know, and definitely Putin himself has has self-radicalised. I know mean, it's sort of the mm. jargon of the, of the, of the moment um, in, in, in a different context. But I mean, I think this, this is it. It's not actually as if Putin was just simply an avatar of a kind of a primordial, angry Russia that wanted to visit its anger on everyone else. I think he was an avatar of a Russia that that, that was, if anything else, deeply embarrassed and scared of, the, of the, the... I mean, there was this real thing. You know, In, in, in 1998, 1999, people would... Perfectly seriously, be talking about whether or not the Russian Federation will survive. No,
0: I, I remember that. You no, know, I, I mean, mean in, I was, in that context, that. actually,
2: that was... sort of, you know, that's what 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 Putin reflected. He he was about saving a country rather than saving or recreating an empire.
0: Yes, but the attitudes towards the neighbors, and by the neighbors I mean the former Soviet mm-hmm. neighbors, were, I think, the same. If you look at account early accounts of Putin's conversations with Saakashvili, of, uh, 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 granted these are leaked by the Georgian side, so take that what you will, but that Putin would talk to Saakashvili in the, like, like Sakashvili was some, like, you know, obcom head during the Soviet times, and Putin was essentially his superior. And Sakashvili came right back at him and used the same salty, colorful language. This, again, this is the account of the Georgian side. Um, and, 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 and Putin hung up the phone on him. Um, so you, you had these same attitudes. Remember, it was Russia that brokered the transfer of power from Shevardnadze. To, 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 it was, was Igor Ivanov, who, who Tbilisi to Tbilisi, to broker that transfer of power. They expected to, to the, that Saakashvili would continue acting the same way as, as, as Shevardnadze had that he would that Russia would be able to appoint key security figures in in, in the Georgian government um even to set to Sakashvili you know take care of this guy there was a certain figure that he wanted appointed to a certain ministry and Saakashvili immediately fired him um but this was the attitude that Putin displayed toward Russia's neighbors Yeah look, um, this is so not that, the issue, this though. is never but this has never gone my point is this has never gone away i think what's changed was capabilities That's that's part of it
2: but i mean look The the point is not was Putin a lovely even handed chap to everyone. Of course not. I mean you know I I mean absolutely, Um, but but in a way this is about as it were wider Russian attitudes. You know you're asking about whether or not the tail was wagging the dog. Mm -hmm. I don't actually believe that. Yes, of course within Russians though there, there was a sense of we're a big country and these are small countries and it's not unique to the Russians. To have leaders who who treat um, leaders of smaller countries, <laughs> um, you know, with 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 a certain degree of, 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 of disdain and and, and and peremptoriness. But I think, I mean, and and this this again speaks to this sort of the, the, the complex interaction. I think what what Putin has done over time is, on the one hand, I think he has become more exactly because he he regards these countries as not just simply being disobedient, but as being downright treacherous, and as an ex KGB, he doesn't
0: regard them as countries.
2: Well. I, I mean, okay, wh- whatever we call them, but you know, as these—I mean, he definitely doesn't think that they're just simply um, oblasts of the, of the Russian Federation. I mean, he—he he would have to be a moron to think that. No, I mean, but he regards them as essentially dependent countries. He has this nineteenth-century geopolitical perspective that strong countries have almost a right to tell smaller countries around them what to do. So as far as he's concerned, these are countries, but countries that, but that should know their place. The point is, as he has become more and more of a caricature of himself, more and more of an imperialist, I think now we can talk about Putin as an imperialist in the way that I wouldn't necessarily have thought so quite so clearly in, in 2000. Um, he's, you know He's playing this interesting role with Russian society in that he's trying to basically bring them along with him, and he's having some success but not the kind of success we might expect.
0: So you don't think the tail's wagging the dog here then? No, I think with, put, with Putin
2: is, is barking whatever he wants to bark.
0: Uh,
1: yeah, I, I, I agree. I think part of the reason for that uh, failure is, I mean, imperialist or not, Putin might be an imperialist. He doesn't really have a clear strategy for what that entails and how that's going to be played out. Um, But I want to make another point if we're talking about social attitudes and what these polls um, reflect. I think these, as I said before, I still believe these are different things that, yes, the Kremlin will mobilize and they do overlap and they do, uh, they are used as fodder. Um, But I I think we should also distinguish the sentiment of um, uh, anti-Westernism, of of anti-Americanism from this. I mean, it's one thing to have a special relationship with uh, your neighboring um, ethnicity cities and your neighbors, uh, right? It's another uh, how you feel about America. And I mean, from personal experience, I think there's a very deep seated thing going on here. When I came back to Russia as a Russian American, to this day, I still hear this, people always ask me, isn't it better here? (laughs) They really want to feel validated that I came, I, I, I could live in America, but no, I came back to Russia. And that that's so important to them on such a deep seated level, and um, I mean, I think I think Putin toyed around with the idea of conflating that with. Uh, the lo- his local geopolitical policies, mm. uh, to where they ki- he kind of started spreading that sentiment to the idea of I don't know Georgia or Ukraine leaving uh, the EU, command and turning westwards. Um, but again, like yes, that, that, that he he tried to exploit that sentiment. I don't, really don't think he succeeded that well because mm. of this. I think. As we've seen lately with Dunbar's very indecisive policy,
0: the one other thing I wanted to hit on before we shifted gears to domestic politics is the economy and the way the effect the economy has on these imperial attitudes. Like I said, the nineties, okay, the economy was was pretty much in the toilet, um, and. These attitudes were rising, and in this sense, you could see this maybe as a, a, a reaction to a bad economy, as you said, Anna, maybe a reaction against Yeltsin and his policies, but these numbers have remained high throughout a period of rising living standards. What effect do you think the economy has on this uh, on, on this equation, Mark? Do you have any thoughts on
2: that? Yeah, I mean, I think you you've
0: already sort of you know
2: hit the key point that actually the sort of, the data suggests that there isn't a sort of a, a, a direct connection. I think where the economy comes in is in a, is on a sort of is how it gets operationalized. I think you 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 have national sentiment that is obviously an incredibly complex. Um, outcome of all kinds of, of of different forces. And actually, objective economic conditions are often relatively sort of marginal. Mm. Firstly, because there's a big difference between objective and subjective. Secondly, there's a big difference between, um, I suppose, hope. Um, the most dangerous time is actually when you... Begin to acquire new hope that 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 mm-hmm. usually yeah. sort of liberates just, yeah. um, perspectives. Whereas actually, when, when when times are hard, you tend to hunker down and you sort of you just simply concentrate on on, mm-hmm. on 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 living living lives or whatever. Now, but I, but I think where the economy comes in is on how effectively you can mobilise some of these sentiments. Uh, and I think this, this is where I mean it, it. It when when times are good, when everything is going absolutely sort of wonderfully and and, 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 and swimmingly. Um, you can you, you can more easily just tune out of politics and think hey, everything's fine or whatever. You don't really care as much, particularly the politics that's taking place outside your borders that doesn't have an immediate impact on your life. What has happened since 2014, since Crimea, since the Donbass and since the sanctions regime, is unfortunately that the Kremlin has therefore been able to t- take the sanctions regime and use it as a way of mobilising... Mm-hmm economic discontent as precisely an anti-Western, anti-American kind of thing. Now, I should quickly footnote, that is not in any way uh, a reason why we should not have put the sanctions on right. in the first place, let alone keep them there. Um, but nonetheless, we, we just have to accept that that's, that's, that's sort of the game that, that, that Russia has played. And I think the thing is, you might say, when, when times are hard like this, people are looking for um, explanations, excuses, people to blame, and, and so forth. Now, the Kremlin is trying desperately to pin it on the West and in some cases they have some success. But as as we'll see when we in the mm-hmm. second part when we start talking about the sort of domestic impact, actually what's what's really quite striking is the extent to which it's clearly only a partial success, mm-hmm. so that you know actually it's not as if the the economic problems are creating a sort of a mass consensus towards now we have to sort of show the West what's what.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good that's a good way to segue into 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 the second half. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and shift gears to the domestic context and look at some of the results of the Pew poll that should make the Kremlin a little bit nervous. I'd like to remind you you're listening to the Power Vertical Podcast. My name is Brian Whitmore, author of the Power Vertical blog here at RFURL. Joining me here in the studio is co-host Mark Gagliotti, a senior research fellow at the Institute of International Relations in Prague, head of its Center for European Security, and a visiting fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Also joining us here in the studio is journalist Anna Artunyan, author of the book The Putin Mystique, Inside Russia's Power Cult. I'd also like to remind you, you could subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on iTunes. You could read the Power Vertical blog and watch the Daily Vertical at RFRL.org, and you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical
1: украинская власть, в том, что власть. Украины. К числу европейских
2: людей. История История в uh, мы своим Более того.
0: Okay, yeah. so here's some numbers that should cause some sleepless nights for Vladimir Putin. Support for the Kremlin leader's handling of Ukraine has dropped 20 percent since 2015. Support for Putin's handling of the European Union is down 15% over that same time period, and support for his handling of relations with the United States and China are both down 12%. Putin's lost 15% support for his management of the economy and energy. He's lost 13% support for his handling of corruption. Now, granted, Putin still has majority support, in some case, large majority support, in all of these areas and all of these issues, save corruption, where he has a 49% approval rating. Um, It's amazing that it's even that high. But the trend lines must be troubling six months before an election. So is Putin just coming down from what was a very, very high baseline in 2015, Or are these numbers harbingers of a more dangerous trend for the regime? Mark, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think let's just dwell first of all on on this fascinating um, paradox that at the same time, as you said, this massive sort of fall in in so many of his different sort of specific confidence ratios, uh, according to the Pew poll, he gets 87% overall support. Yeah. So on the one That's, hand, there yeah. are lots of these people who are saying, "Ah, he's not good at this. He's not good at that." But he's lovely. I mean, unless, <laughs> unless, kind of, you know, it, 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 it's all it's all based on averaging, and he's sort of scored almost perfect marks in in botox and horse riding. Um, you know, it, 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 it says an interesting. But again, I think it says interesting things about the way that, in some ways, Putin the icon, Putin the the, the Russian avatar, is divorced from Putin the manager. Of, of the state. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it is quite striking the extent to which one, one, one clearly sees um, a growing appreciation of not just that things are hard, but that Putin is is, is to blame. It's interesting because, I mean, the Levada, the latest Levada poll, you know, the, the other, I mean, the, sort of the, the, the best of the domestic opinion polling agencies, I mean, they actually have uh, Putin's personal approval at a mere 81 percent, which is actually slightly down. Um, But on the other hand, the government approval at 47%. Now, in the past, the government has always been Putin's bulletproof vest. Mm -hmm. Um, It's there to protect him. What? I would suggest that these these figures show from from Pew is precisely that actually the bulletproof vest is getting very, very thin and rather moth-eaten. So
0: he's got to get some new Kelvar, then.
2: Well, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's that or else maybe, maybe, maybe the strategy is not, not going to work forever. Look, I mean, it's not going to lead to him being elected, voted out in 2018. But no. in terms of actually, I think, demonstrating that Russians have woken up to the connection between the decisions that Putin makes and the quality of their own lives. And it's worth mentioning also uh, 53% of of Russians think the economy is going to at best stay the same over the mm-hmm. next year or get worse, despite the fact that, the, you know, putin's constant claims that oh things are getting so much better just just over the horizon you know i, I think that actually is quite an alarming trend for well him.
0: let's make it even a little bit more complicated here's an interesting number 58 uh, percent think that russia is the country is moving in the right direction the old right track wrong track poll the, the thing the one the number the american pollsters watch obsessively 58 to 37 the country's moving in the right direction now, how do, how do you square that? I mean, it's clearly these the are fifth columnists who want to see Russia destroyed. <laughs> Anna, your
2: thoughts?
1: Uh, well, th- this is a, a very interesting paradox that I think speaks a lot to the way Putin rules and to the Putin phenomenon itself. Um, now, Alexey Levinson, when I was with him in, in, in Tallinn uh, during our, our panel, he said a very interesting thing that I think explains um, the phenomenon of the high approval ratings for Putin himself. Uh, and he said, uh, Levinson said that the, uh, the, your average Russian is not really. I mean, if if, if we're asking ourselves, are people just afraid of, of dissing Putin? And it's not. It's, it's more complicated than that. Uh, the Russian is not afraid of the policeman coming for him. He's um, afraid of being against the system within him. He's afraid of uh, sparking a certain internal cognitive dissonance because if he's going to be against Putin as a whole, against the system as a whole, then your average Russian is going to have to ask himself, okay, what do I do now? Do I leave? Do I go protest in the street? What? I really, there's really nothing for him to do. So rather than face that internal um, question, he's just going to, inside... Accept that Putin is now secondly I think the the fact that uh, putin 's ratings uh, are dro- uh, on on issues specifically are dropping across the board, I think that represents uh, a very positive development it 's a very unique development but it's, it, it, i think it 's a very hopeful one we 're seeing a splitting of um, issues that it 's not all about putin okay there 's this underlying um, approval of Putin. There's this acceptance that he's not going anywhere, that we're not really going to change that. We're not going to make him leave. But we are actually going to start asking ourselves about our agency on specific issues.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that that's an issue, I think, that, that the protest leader, Alexei Navalny, has tapped into mm-hmm. and precisely why it's so successful. It's not... Uh, triggering that internal dissonance that that the average Russian really can't do anything about. It's actually asking people about things they can do, that they can care about, without feeling themselves betraying Putin or, you know, asking them questions that they can't resolve.
0: Put another way, and I saw this, there was an article in in, in Intersection magazine about this this week, that how Putin is basically losing his monopoly on what they called uh, symbolic Russia, what I would call, his he's losing monopoly on narrative. He's losing monopoly on the story. And as he's doing that, like we've said many times in this podcast, Navalny's presenting another story. Right, and it's um, as as I as I dubbed it last week. Uh, yes, we can, right?
1: Well, yeah, because people are starting to see the possibility of agency, and it's not just Navalny; it's 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 the people themselves. I mean, they've kind of moved aside from blaming Putin for everything, or on the other hand, um, thanking him for everything. Well,
0: let's let's stick with Navalny a mm-hmm. bit here. And I know uh, I, I wasn't planning on going here, but I think I want to go here now. Okay. This is where the discussion's going. You you wrote a rather controversial piece this week saying that that Navalny should stop protesting um, and, and and move to the next stage of his his uh, his move to new stages of political engagement. What will we'll spell out your argument for our, for our readers? I think it was a pretty interesting
1: one. Well, uh, yes. I mean, uh, what, what I'm what I'm trying to say here, and I think Navalny's kind of been doing this anyway, is that. Protests, as they are in Russia, for Navalny, they're going to work as a PR strategy. They're not going to work in and of themselves. Protests at this point in Russian development are not going to really achieve much. They're not going to bring Putin down, and they're not really going to change the political situation. What Navalny's been successful in doing is uh, legal outreach, networking, and generally playing into this new sense of agency that mm. Russians can take matters into their own hands. What that means is not bringing Putin down, but taking matters into their own hands precisely instead of calling him on the annual hotline to fix the water, (laughs) actually doing something about it themselves, separating corruption from, from Putin.
0: So working on local issues, working on
1: Working on local issues and saying, okay, look, you don't want to protest against Putin, but you do want to protest against corruption. And that's a very interesting, uh, there, there are very interesting numbers on that, uh, showing that I think some 40% supported anti-corruption protests, according to Levada. Mm-hmm. Um, now, take 20%, or I don't know if we say Putin's, Putin's approval rating is 80 or 87%. I mean, there's, that's a pretty big overlap of people who are... Who approve of Putin but are willing to protest corruption, and I think that's a, that 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 is exactly the thing that Navalny would do best mm. to exploit.
0: Mark, first, do you agree with Anna's argument, and if so, put it into the context of these numbers we're seeing here about Putin? Because I think there's there's there, there, there's some there's an avenue to explore here. Yeah,
2: sure. I mean, I think this is the interesting thing because I mean, if we if we talk about this sort of struggle of narratives, if I can just flip on that first, yeah, I, mean, I, I absolutely agree. But I don't, again. And this is sort of reprising a point from 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 last week is, you know, I don't think this is Putin versus Navalny because there are lots and lots of people who've never heard of Navalny, but who nonetheless have all kinds of other issues. I mean, I think it's actually it's more about, you might say, a weakening of the Putin narrative, more and more people. And this is something that I if I think back to this is one of the sort of the the ways that actually the, the old Soviet Union collapsed amongst many others, beyond just simply the sort of grinding down of its economy, is increasingly people were were actually looking and thinking, well, this is the propaganda that the regime is telling us. This is my own lived life. Mm -hmm. And I'm just actually realizing that there is a complete mismatch. I may not yet have a new narrative, but I certainly can begin to discard the old one. And I think this is the key point. And this is, to, to link it to Navalny, whereas I think precisely he's coming into a situation where it's not just simply that, that um, Russians are political comparison shoppers, saying, Putin, Navalny, tell me what you've got and I'll make a choice, which is in a way the classic Western democratic model. It's actually that precisely I think there is a growing proportion who have, they they, they might think, yeah, 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 Putin, Putin, but nonetheless, I appreciate that the narrative has many, many holes, and therefore they are up for grabs, and absolutely, I think this is the point where where, where Navalny should, should be moving towards exploiting the very specific issues, local ones and not immediately, obviously, political ones, but ones which actually sort of matter to people's lives, and also doing more to institutionalize. That's the key thing. He needs a political machine. Mm-hmm. And this is exactly how he's going to build it. So, so to link it to the numbers, I mean, it's fascinating. If, if one looks at what Russians were asked, and I, I do apologize to the listeners, there's going to be more figures, but... but We'll try and make sure that next week is once again a fact-free opinion fest. (laughs) Um, But... But...
0: Or we'll do video and have just funny charts and stuff.
2: Absolutely. This is it. I mean, I, I must admit, I'm disappointed that we're not a TV program yet. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, um, we, we have, in terms of when when Russians are asked, what are the main problems facing them? 71% it's, it's rising prices, 58% corrupt political leaders, 54% jobs, 54% terrorism and, and so forth, and income disparities, that kind of thing. Well, the fascinating thing is that these are not one, these are not issues which actually, in the main, the stake... Putin state can fix, even if actually the economy starts getting better. Sure, then we may well see wages improve Mm. and people's job opportunities improve. But, you know, corruption of political leaderships, well, that is baked into the system. There's Mm -hmm. no way you can get around that without
0: completely revising it. But yet there tends to be more tolerance of it when the economy is doing well.
2: Well, I... When that is, you might say, is a comparison. I mean, in a way, why, why that did so well for Putin was because Putin was coming after the 1990s, mm. and it was all of a sudden, my God, you know, we, we can actually live normal lives. Russians have got used to normal lives. I think they, yeah. they, they're no longer willing to say, thank you so much for the fact that you know, I can repair my car. That's something <laughs> that they expect as a norm. But in terms of the income disparity, I think that's fascinating, that you actually have more than half the population regarding income disparity. I, not just I am poor... But I am poor at a time when other people are doing are doing so well. So again, yeah. I mean, I think what, what is really Inequality striking is these are systemic issues. Not these are not just simply I uh, I can't find a job. Right. Though so obviously that, that is one one of the factors, and unemployment is not a particularly huge problem yet in Russia. Um, but rather, these are actually where, where, where people are beginning to see the problem. And if Navalny can capitalize on that, if he can actually make that point, you know, because these are not people not necessarily thinking. This is a systemic factor. They are actually just thinking, um, you know, corrupt local leaderships are failing to do what we meant to do. This is why corruption works for Navalny because he can use that to connect people's ordinary day-to-day lives with Putin and with the system.
0: Right, and if you notice, they've the uh, the Duma this week took a took a took a shot at kind of shutting off Navalny's avenues for exposing corruption passing a new law that uh, makes it makes the data about. The, <laughs> the 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 finances of of top officials um uh, uh, classified mm-hmm. <laughs> so um you, you have to wonder how that's going to play out but when, when we look going forward I mean when when it's become almost a mantra here no matter what happens he's not going to unseat Putin in 2018 no he's not there's two elections going on here I think I mean, I've said this before we talked about this a bit last week there's two elections coming up there's the election in March 2018. Um, And then there's the election for Russia's future, essentially. There's two elections that are... And and Navalny is pretending that he wants to run in the first election, but in reality, he's running in the second one, isn't he?
1: What what is the election for for Russia's future? When is... I mean, that that, that doesn't have a set date. That's an ongoing process. No, it doesn't. It's an ongoing process, exactly. That Navalny has, has sparked. And that he's actually done a very good thing by basically separating that from the Putin issue. It's like, let's look at our future. Let's stop letting Putin shape our reality. Mm
0: -hmm. Let's
1: take matters into our own hands. And I think he, I I can't really quote this, I think he, but he did bring this up at a certain interview. It was like, you know, there's a certain acceptance of, well, screw this guy. Let's look at our future, uh, you know, once once he leaves. And um, again, that is, there's there's no there's no there's not going to be a referendum on that. That is a process, and that's mm-hmm. a very long, difficult, drawn out process. And one of the things that Navalny is doing is he's mobilizing lawyers, uh, having them argue, uh, discuss Russian law as. Uh, as though laws matter and telling people, yeah, they do matter, L- rule of law does matter, we're going to take this seriously, we're going to argue about these laws, and we're going to, uh, you know, see where that leads. Um, and, you know, over, uh, over a period of time, uh, that is exactly the place uh, from which institutions are uh, built,
0: this is interesting because on, you raised the point. When is that election happening? This election for Russia's future, and it's an ongoing process. How do you see this process playing out, Mark? This is this is this is this is the story right now in a lot of ways. It's not a story that it's it's really easy to get your mm-hmm. get your head around. But this is the key question. It's it's preparing
2: for the post Putin future. It is, and and this is again to go back to to, to your earlier point. This is essentially about. Crafting narratives. Crafting narratives that can appeal to a whole variety of constituencies, including most crucially the Russian elite. I mean, we, we have to realize that it's it's all very well thinking we want to appeal to the, um, you know, the masses and give them agency and such and like and that that is indeed great. But actually, in in the transition period, um, you know, I mean, theoretically, Putin could be toppled. Quite unlikely, unless mm-hmm. he does something incredibly dangerous. Perhaps more likely, Putin will fall foul of some f- fail, failure of his own body, but probably Putin himself will, you know, actually want to to pass on the the, the mantle to, onto someone else to Navalny. No, no, not not to Navalny, but this is it. Because so what we're going to be talking about is some is some process which is going to manage an interregnum, not necessarily to Navalny. There's nothing that guarantees that he's going to be one day Russia's president. But you might say the kind of forces that Navalny represents. It's un, it's very very unlikely we're going to see a step change from from Putinism to Navalnyism. Mm-hmm. We're going to see something in between. And again, if if, if other democratization processes work there's really when one of two things that... I mean, obviously, usually it's an interaction. Sometimes it's the outside world that either we've, we've just conquered you, Germany, here is your new democratic constitution, or more often you want to join the European Union, well, here are the rules of the game, show that you can sort of fit those and, and welcome in. That's highly unlikely to be taking the place with, with Russia. Instead, we're going we're to see this, the other model of democratisation, which is actually an elite that realises that, in fact, democracy gives it a lot more security um, than it had under the old system, and a lot more access as well as legitimacy and so forth. And I think we're already seeing that. I mean, I, th- I think what I would love to see, and one knows that no one could ever do it, would be a similar opinion poll of precisely, not so much the oligarchs, but but the minigarchs, mm-hmm. the senior officials, the people who merely have right. a couple of million in the bank dollars, not rubles, I should stress. Um, you know, and, and that kind of... Because I think there we have... I, th- I think, you know whenever we do have indications, it's actually that the, the overwhelming majority could not be considered to be fanatical Putinistas. They are essentially pragmatic and self-interested. And I think from, for many of them, actually, Navalny holds few fears. Mm. Navalny is in many ways not just the candidate for you know, an aspiring young student in Omsk. He's also the candidate for the you know, merely $20 million dollar um, Russian entrepreneur who's
0: been monetizing his position or I mean
2: who has who's been monetizing his position but is now in a state where he doesn't need to anymore you know you you want there to be weak police when you're robbing banks once you're rich enough to have your money in banks you want there to be a police force mm. if you own the banks or whatever I think you know this is it there, there are a lot of elites who I think will be perfectly willing to accept a, a, a limited form of sort of a a slow shift towards a law-based state. Because mm-hmm. uh, on the whole, it's, it's, precisely it's self-interested elites which tend to pioneer that process. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, in a way, the fascinating thing is Navalny is Navalny's creating a sense of two things. One is an end state, and the other one is a process to get there. Mm-hmm. And precisely because he's not being a, a, an incredible firebrand, He's not saying, you know, we need to find these people, drag them out and hang them from lampposts. Quite the opposite. It's all actually quite comforting. It's precisely, it's about rule of law. It's about due process and so forth. He's presenting himself as a reasonable guy who can make a deal in due course. Although
0: some heads will certainly have to roll. Yeah, uh, but you might case, say, th- mean- th-
2: that there's always going to be a sacrifice, but you might say if, if, shall I say, 95% of the elite can think, we can we can basically handle this transition fine and sacrifice 5%, 5% who, frankly, are also exploiting them.
0: You know, there's
2: not much enthusiasm for the sections of this
0: world. Right, but those 5% are the ones that control all the levers of power right now. I mean, one theory that's been out there is that Navalny is basically positioning himself to be the guy that the elite would feel comfortable handing power over to. I've always been suspicious of that. I, I think he has support inside the elite for sure. But I, I've always been suspicious of that because he's, by nature of who, of who he is, somebody's head's going to have to roll. And it is going to be those people who really hold the lever. But in right a way, the, the
2: key thing is you don't necessarily expect to win those people. What you want is to win over the people who answer the phone when these guys pick up the phone. Mm. You know, if, if it means that actually those 5%, when they pick up the phone to their, their henchmen, the henchmen aren't in. Mm-hmm. Or the henchmen say, I'm sorry, it's a really bad line. Then in a way that 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 I think is is, is 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 the way this can work but no i mean it's it's not going to be that they hand it over to new i i I'm, i am I'd be amazed if it was not a, a sort of a staged transition mm. that you're going to actually have an essentially corrupt pragmatic figure who realizes nonetheless that the writing is on the wall and it he was heading in a navalny direction. This is what I mean about this the importance of this end-state model. Mm-hmm. Navalny is not saying, this is what I want to build now and tomorrow, and, and, and New Jerusalem will, will be built you know, on, mm. on day five or whatever. <laughs> He's saying, this is the direction we're going in, and actually this is going to work for most of us.
0: Mm-hmm. Are any thoughts here?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think it definitely is a very long-term, um, uh, long-term issue. But I mean, one one point uh, that I wanted to touch on is uh, again Navalny's support uh, among the. The, elite. the elites, the you know mid to lower tier elites, which is very important. The only way he's going to maintain and expand that support and that confidence is actually staying off the street or when he mm-hmm. is on the street doing it very carefully. Um, I mean, uh, there's, there are other reasons for that, uh, namely that, as we saw with Balotny, it just didn't work. The protests petered out. They, they lost... They lost that vibe because there was really nothing for them to achieve. Um, but again, what what he's doing through outreach, through local outreach beyond Moscow and beyond St. Petersburg, um, will really do all to place him in a, you know, like increase his trust among mm-hmm. um, various sectors of the elite. In a very tentative latent way yes of course but that will that can be used down the line in the future in many different
0: ways mm-hmm. now we're doing something here that i've been accused of doing so many times and we keep doing again and again we're writing putin's obituary for him um, is this the, i mean how many times have we done this are we doing this too early again
2: well i mean i think what we're doing is we're, we're doing the same thing as navalny is we're appreciating that in a way it, odds are it will be Putin who gets to decide when it's time for his obituary, but on the other hand, it's going to happen, and so much like Navalny, we're just thinking about okay, following that through. Um, that's all. Can I just make? I just suddenly I was thinking one one point, August coup nineteen ninety one, when the hardliners who controlled all the instruments of of, of force within mm. the Soviet Union decided to to get rid of well, to basically put Gorbachev on ice. Get rid of Yeltsin and and so forth. Now, they failed not because they had changed their mind, not because Khrushchev, the head of the KGB, suddenly had a crisis of conscience, (laughs) as if. No, it's precisely because the people beneath them said, I'm not willing to do that. Mm. Or they actually flipped side. But more often, it was just simply they said, look, you know, I'm your guy, but... This is not something we can do. You had generals, you had KGB officers, you had police officers and so forth. So, I mean, I, and, and that was in a system which in some ways is, was, was was much was still much more, more rigid. Now, I'm not saying that this is necessarily mm-hmm. going to happen, but I'm just simply, we, we shouldn't assume that just because someone sits in the big office and has the big phone, that actually they necessarily can guarantee that they can wield that power. Yeah.
0: Now, the only caveat I would say there is that Yeltsin did have in his circle people who were KGB officers, military, active duty, and know, we didn't
2: way. know that until actually it happened. Really, we we knew about um, you know his his bodyguard Korzhakov, but more generally, it was only when Push came to shove that people were actually were, were forced into that position of deciding about which side they were going to be. Yeah, exactly, Lyubid, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, up to that point, if, if if a week before the August coup, someone had said, "Let's draw a list of who actually would 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 basically would back Yeltsin against the government." We wouldn't have put those names on there, mm. or they'll be cast
0: down with so many questions. Mm-hmm. Only when that happens that we know. Mm-hmm. And we won't know until it happens this time. Well, on that note, we'll wrap it up for this week. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical podcast. My name is Brian Whitmore, author of the Power Vertical blog here at RFRL. Joining me here in the studio has been co-host Mark Gagliotti, a senior research fellow at the Institute of International Relations in Prague, head of its Center for European Security, and a visiting fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. And also joining us here in the studio has been journalist Anna Arutunyan, author of the book, The Putin Mystique, Inside Russia's Power... Cult. thank you both for an enlightening discussion. Always a pleasure. <laughs> I'd thank also like too. to thank our brilliant patient and ridiculously overworked producer Tanya Kancheva, and my indispensable and totally awesome colleague, Pavel Butorin, managing editor of RFRL's Russian language television program, Current Time, which you can watch at www.currenttime.tv. I'd also like to remind you: you could subscribe to Power Vertical podcast on iTunes. You could read the Power Vertical blog and watch the Daily Vertical at RFURL.org, and you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week, and now, as always, I leave you with the ambient sounds of my favorite socially conscious Russian rapper, Noise MC.